This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. This week, we are bringing you one of my favorite episodes to date. The Power Athlete crew chats candidly about a myriad of topics, but what separates this conversation from the typical HQ banter is that we took your questions in real time. That's right, when we made a call out on Instagram for an open Q&A, you responded. The topics range from kids in contact sports to diet to the professional foibles of your team's PT. In today's show, you'll hear the guys revisit a common theme throughout, and that is to struggle is to succeed. Everyone wants to win, and ultimately, it is the only outcome that matters, but a win is not a right. It's a privilege, a privilege extended only to those who put themselves in precarious situations, be it physical, mental, or both. Stay tuned because this fruitful discussion is guaranteed to resonate with your competitive side and serve as a reminder that as in life, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Life gains, sport gains, gains, gains. This is episode 140. Yo, what's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. This is Denny. Today I'm joined with John, Luke, and Tex, and we're going off the grid, right? We're going to give you a special show, and we're going to talk about contact sports. There's been some chatter on the forums. Um, Tex, what, what exactly did we have that was posted up there? So John, Luke, and I, we got tagged in a pretty – and Rob Wolf, we got tagged in a pretty good question. So the question goes – as such. This question pertains to contact sports of all kinds, everything from heading a ball in soccer to NASCAR. Would you, the parent, allow your child or children to play a sport that possibly has head trauma? But we've learned many things from them, such as you know, personality development, ability to work with others that have shaped us. So does that outweigh the risk and the concern about the, in, the head injury? No. Mm. Well, that was a good show. That was amazing. Okay, no. Uh, it's kind of an interesting deal. I think these questions are much more prevalent today, uh, you know, one, because we have more access through the Internet, Facebook, all these different social media sites. So I think things start happening in real time. And you're seeing, uh, you know, this deal with concussions and NFL players and a lot of these problems. I think where parents need to kind of differentiate is, the impact, I think, of you know a kid playing high school football, I do not believe as dramatic as that as a collegiate or an NFL player. I mean, you're talking about what 200-pound athletes that are you know basically running into each other and falling down, opposed from you know 300-pound dudes using an eight-pound helmet like a weapon to try to you know kill their person by weaponizing their body. But um, you know, it's it's kind of a weird deal and something I didn't really think I would have to enter in as I was a a father or daughters, so I was like, oh, I'm not going to have to really mess with this. But now that I got a son uh, on the way, I think it becomes more realistic. Um, you know, for me personally, 
uh, I didn't start playing football until I was 14 years old, and you know there was a comment in the uh, in the forums today where somebody was kind of asking some questions about me, especially, and um, he made a comment that uh, you know he thought that based on some of the things that I said that playing in the NFL was some goal that I had from the time I was you know pre 14 years old, which it wasn't. I um, had really no aspirations to play in the NFL. Um, I just wanted to actually play on the team, and it just so happened that I got a bunch of scholarship uh, letters. And I realized when I got a scholarship offer that I could actually get a chance to get my school paid for, and that was really the extent of it. And it wasn't until I got to college and the dudes I was playing against uh, on my team ended up all getting drafted in the first round, and then it became a more real deal. But I digress. Uh, the impacts of, you know, of playing football, I think, are, are minuscule in terms of what you develop in terms of a person, um, you know, long ago, I think I, I told somebody that the two best things I ever learned in this world uh, came from my parents and playing football. I mean, in terms of like working with a team, uh, you know, persevere, working, you know, win and loss, um, you know, defeat, victory, uh, you know, how to, you know, glean some form of pride out of a defeat by, you know, realizing that you played the best of your ability and you played a great job. I mean, some of the best games I played in my entire career were actually games we lost. So, I mean, how is it that I could go out and play the game of my life and still lose the game? And it's like, you just kind of develop this stuff. But I think sporting, you know, sports has become uh, this idea where, you know, people look at things uh, so individualized that, oh, you know, a NFL player is having brain problems and the CTE and a lot of the issues which are very prevalent, but yet uh, I'm not going to let my 14-year-old kid play because of what's happening down the road. So I don't know. I just I think we've maybe lost a little bit, or you know, going too far down the the, the rabbit hole. So uh, the comment that I came back with was, you know, one of uh, you know, as a parent, I think you can only work with the information that is presented to you at the very time. And for me, as a parent today, uh, I wouldn't probably let my son play football until he was 14 years old. After I had at least two years to craft him into the athlete that he needs to be to successfully survive that job if he wanted to ever play. But that's so, that's also contact football. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think I would let him play flag football. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, there's so many better sports that I think, uh, you know, kids have opportunity to play. Um, I think, you know, like something like, uh, uh, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu I think would be great. I think, you know, boxing. I think, uh, you know, and that was – one of the you know things I did when I was younger, I did martial arts and boxing, and I think those skills were better. I think basketball, I think playing baseball. I mean, I think there's just so many things that help develop an athlete. Um, you know, we've but talked about it. I mean, I guess you're also talking about developing the traits of an athlete yeah. versus what you got to earlier, which is what I why I would be more of an advocate to get them involved, either whether it's whatever, honestly, whatever the kid wants yeah. to get into, but if it happens to be football, and I'm not a fucking parent, so this could all well, be I like mean, a notified deal, but there's there's character traits that are built in a team sport environment, assuming you have a coach who values a team sport uh, situation, like you, know, like you said, mutual ownership of conflict, yeah. instead of like finger pointing. I mean, all the fucking time in previous life, that was like we used to call it the salute. Like whenever someone fucked up, they would always point the finger sure. versus – and those people were never athletes. But the athletes that I worked with that were team sport athletes, if something was fucked, it was like, well, let's unfuck it. Yeah. You know, And it's just like I think that for me, that type of mentality came from – From playing football from when you were – From playing football. Well, uh, what age did you start playing football? Ten. Ten. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I wanted to play football, but um, I couldn't make the weight. I was too yeah. big. So I mean, I think I was what six foot one sixty five when Dude, I was, I was a freshman on a high school. Fucking diet of broccoli, spray butter, and chicken breast because I was like one forty nine. You had to be one fifty. Yeah, I, I don't think I could actually make the weight. And I remember I was like, uh, but you know, at the time I didn't know shit about dieting. Like, <laughs> I mean, like now I'd be like, hey, no problem, I'll make it. But um, no, I, I didn't play, and so uh, you know, we just did a host of other sports. And I, I like the combatives. I mean, I grew up with two brothers. I mean, we fought, we battled, and I think I enjoyed the combatives. I mean, even my four-year-old daughters uh, the other day when they came to the gym, uh, my one daughter picked up a piece of foam that we use for bench press and proceeded to smash her sister in the face with it. And as my one little, as my one daughter went goes down on her butt, she like looks around with this like, like you know, scared. I don't know what to do. Look. And she like looks at me. I'm like, pick something up and hit her with it. So she went and picked up a uh, like a inflatable, you know, purple kind of like ball that we have, and smashed her sister with it. And they started battling. But I think like if you have got to the point where you're an adult and you've never and like it was great. I was awesome to see my four year old daughter have that look on her face. I'm like, great. Everybody should have that look. You get knocked down. What do you do? How do you get up? You have to persevere. The problem is I don't think we put people in a situation where they do get knocked down and they get that scared look on their face. And that's mm-hmm. the one best thing I learned about football is, like, you get hit, you get knocked down, you get your ass beat. Like, you either have a choice to, like, walk off the field or get up and do it again. And um, I think that's what football teaches you more so than any other sport I've ever been around. And, uh, you know, the big thing, too, is I, I don't think that people uh, are preparing the kids for the demands of football like they were maybe 20, 30 years ago. I mean, I grew up with two older brothers, and I remember when I went to go play football, I was like, this is great. I finally get to battle against kids my own age. And I think we just, you know, maybe just not as, as hardy a person. I mean, you you were the one that came home and told me after watching The Reverend. You were like, dude. We are pussies. <laughs> we're pussies. <laughs> Ironically, as uh, I went home and there was a deal I saw where this kid had tried to commit suicide because his mom would not upgrade the broadband. Mm-hmm. And their internet was slow, so he wasn't able to get it. game and do things as fast as he wanted. And he complained to his mom, and so he was so upset with the shame of it, he tried to commit suicide. <laughs> what so, sport does he do? What the fuck? No, I mean, but but I uh, like. I know what you're saying. No, no, I'm, I mean, what what I think is is really fucking telling, at least about you know this situation today. And Denny, you can relate to this a little bit, like. I grew up in a time where, like, we came in and my mom was like, just leave, just go. We weren't allowed to watch TV. There was no video games. There was nothing. I mean, just go. Go outside, ride your bikes, come back when it's dark. Right. It was a punishment to stay in the house, right, because they fucking make you clean or something. Well, my mom would make us cook and scream at us. Right. And um, so we would just be like, got our bikes, fucking go. So, I mean, like, even, like, uh, when I got my daughters their their bicycles for their birthday, and they were riding them, and, like, you know, about a – I think it was about – a month ago, my one daughter asked, like, what are these wheels back here? I'm like, they're training wheels. And she's like, oh, do we have to have them? I'm like, no, they're gone. So we took them off, and they, you know, can ride their bikes. But, dude, I remember the day my parents took off my training wheels. I literally rode away, and I don't think I came back for, like, an hour. And nobody came to look for me. And I remember I came back, and I was like, oh, I came in. And my parents were like, oh, how'd it go? Did you figure it out? I'm like, yeah, I fell a bunch of times, so I got it. Like, me, I'm out there on their uh, – uh, I got them a Razor scooter for Christmas – so what's awesome is they ride the bikes, and I've been kicking ass around on that Razor scooter. And, you know, so I, I go out and I ride with them. And they're pretty good, but it's not like all of a sudden, like, as a father today, if all of a sudden my four-year-old decided to ride down the street without me, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, it's just kind of a different time a little bit. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just us being different parents or however it fits. But I don't personally see a problem, like, for my son, if he wants to play football, I'm not going to push him into it. 
but I'm surely going to arm him with the this you know the the size, the strength, the skill, all the things that I know to prepare him. I think part of the problem we run into with a lot of things is we think that here's my child. I haven't done anything to prepare him for the demands and what's in front of him. And why doesn't he naturally get it? Isn't school going to develop like if if I had to depend on my high school for strength and conditioning, I would have never got where I was. If I hadn't been lucky enough to go over to Zangus's garage, I would have never really had the opportunity to do what I did. So I think as parents, you have to be proactive and be like, hey, if my son or daughter decides to play these sports, then you know I have to put them in the best position. I mean, uh, actually, the one gnarly one is I, I take my girls to gymnastics, and we usually go early so we can watch actually like the older girls uh, compete in gymnastics or do their training. And... Um, the training that these, and I think they're about 12 to 14 year old girls, uh, the training that these girls do on an everyday basis makes a um, games competitor CrossFit athlete look like a fucking amateur warm up. Like uh, these girls are in there for three fucking hours sprinting, running, jumping. I mean, it, dude, it's super impressive. And my daughters watch them. And like I watched a girl go off and she uh, vaulted and dude straight up landed on her, on her neck and shoulder and like fucked herself up. Dude, you know, they went over, they went over there, saw if she was okay, the girl was crying, walked her back, made her fucking go again. So, I mean, you know, there's, I, I just don't think anybody benefits by hand-holding people to the finish line. And I think that's the one thing that I think sport really taught me is this idea that, you know, and there's a Talk to Me Johnny on, um, that one I think I wrote about seriously, you know, was it Serious Muscle Seriously, where I told him, like, nobody's coming to save you. There's nobody hiding around the corner to fucking, you know, offer you this information and protect you and bring you along. Like you're in a situation where it's you and your ability to do these things. And if you're not fucking proactive, nobody's coming to save you. And I think that's become this kind of, you know, needs to be more at the forefront. Like you as a parent have to make your decision and say, Hey, you know what, if I'm going to let them do it, this is the direction they're going. And, uh, you know, if I choose or if they want to choose this, it's my job as a parent to arm them with the, either the, the skills or the technique. And, um, I played with this guy, Andre Carter, who uh, played at Cal with me, played about 14 years in the NFL and, you know, really, really talented defensive end. His dad uh, was a coach, uh, played in the NFL, and Reuben Carter uh, was defense. He's still a defensive line coach in the NFL. And Andre didn't play football until his senior year of high school. He was a, you know, national-ranked taekwondo guy, did a bunch of other sports, Olympic lifted. I mean, super strong. And all of a sudden, 14 years old, decided, hey, I want to go play football. His dad takes him out there. About 45 minutes shows him how to play some football. Kid goes out and gets a scholarship at Berkeley. He was there three years. I mean, first round draft pick. I mean, just a beast of a human. And uh, you know, there was a situation where I asked him. He's like, you know, I, I I never wanted to push him to play football, but if he wanted to play football, I was going to make sure that all the skills that he needed to be successful were there for him. And you know, it just so happened that the taekwondo and the weightlifting and all the things he did made him ready. So I guess there's two. There's kind of two veins to it, right? There's the selfish. Uh, kind of mastermind vein, like I have a child, I, like we talked about creating the perfect young male, uh, you know, teach him how to dance, teach him how to play guitar, sing fucking Dave Matthews band, do a backflip and have abs, like you're getting laid well, every campfire. Well, that was our goal is to basically <laughs> arm your son with the ability to slay as much ass as possible <laughs> by giving him a set of skills uh, that will make him by far the best, being like, oh, hey, but, this old thing? And just tears out and plays but I guess, Obviously, as a parent, you want to see your child be as successful as possible. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some some parents take that to the extreme. I'm, I've coached youth sports, and, like, some parents you want to fucking punch in the mouth. But I guess what you're saying is if, 
you know, your son came up to you at 11 years old and obviously is going to be involved in all sorts of shit growing up to develop, you know, physically, mentally, just, you know, the extracurriculars. And he's like, I want to play football. You, you wouldn't be concerned about the contact. What you would say is, okay, well, let's do what I know what to do. Let's get you a big, strong back, a big, strong neck. Let's teach you how to hit. When you're teach 14, you the fundamentals. 14 years old. Yeah. But, like, if that if you saw that in the pipeline, then you would know uh, there's contact sports ahead. So keep, stay off the sugary drinks. Yeah. Like, they wouldn't even be on that shit anyways. But all the things that we know from all of our guests on this show and everybody who's worked with us, uh, the things that perpetuate the seriousness of head trauma and TBI, you would just try to mitigate that as best you can. Yes, right? 100%. You so. know. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Perlmutter had a lot of great comments, but also talking with uh, Dr. Ford, Ken Ford, you know, I mean, there's a definite real, you know, kind of protocol to, to safeguarding these things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, but I, I think um, through the ages, uh, people have learned combatives for a reason mm -hmm. because only through that type of adversity is it going to allow you to really know who you are. And yeah. I think like I don't want to die without any scars. Yeah, I mean, club. you start stripping that away from people, or we put them in virtual realities like Nate, where they just you know fist fight people on the internet with you know mm -hmm. as a little character. I mean, if, if if that's our reality, then I think uh, uh, you know Harry Stamper shouldn't have blown up the asteroid. He should have let us hit him. You know, because <laughs> the movie Arm or Armageddon was a documentary. It wasn't a movie. Right. Yeah. Harry Stamper. Tell him Harry's calling. So, John, the, the story of uh, you taking your girls early to gymnastics, that kind of reminds me of just growing up because we start playing football at seventh grade. We start lifting once we start, uh, or you want to play football, you start lifting in sixth grade. So it was nothing but bench press, bicep curls, and just picking up dumbbells. But at the same time, it was that opportunity to see the other guys, the older guys in the weight room, whether sure. they were in eighth grade, or, and then we were encouraged to go to the high school games. And so it was uh, just seeing hard work. It was seeing brotherhood. It was seeing high fives and pick, picking people up. So I was in the Katie, the Katie Taylor neighborhood to things, so we saw a lot of losing. But at the same time, it was go watch these young men and learn from them. Learn from their mistakes so when you are ready and when you have that opportunity, you can do something about it. So that's what I think is, is kind of missing now. People are looking at... The injuries, they're looking at uh, just kind of acute things versus the actual long-term thing of, you know, building a community because that's that's all we know. So it's uh, it's it's taken an interesting turn, and I'm, I'm working with some high schools now and just trying to, to change that from that direction of bet on well, yourself, bet well, on the guy the, next to you. The, uh, the state of which we're living in is people are reactive to everything and like there's no pro like, like people are not no longer proactive everything's reaction like somebody writes something they post on Facebook and it causes a massive reaction somebody does something and it's reactive and the problem is we become so desensitized to things that the only thing that causes a reaction are the most extreme things so you hear all these parents that are you know like I, I just remember when um, what was it like you remember what, what college was it that had all those players get rhabdo. Iowa. Iowa, where they made them, I think it was like 50, 50 bodyweight back squats in like 20 minutes, mm -hmm. and then they had to like push a prowler. Like, and when we looked at the, like, and, and I remember reading the comments, and there was all these fucking... How irresponsible. Oh, yeah. shit fucking fathers. If that was me, I'd march down there and punch that fucking coach in the face. 
And I'm like, first of all, you you know, you probably could make a fist because you can't make a fist with uh, Cheetos all over your Cheeto stuff all over your hands. <laughs> uh, but you know, like, and, and I'm like, like listening to all these parents talk about it. This was my kid, and I only imagine like if that if you know if that workout happened and something bad happened to me, my parents blame me and be like, why weren't you ready for this? What did you do that this was? I mean, if the coaches put it out there, and we did way worse shit. And that's the funny part is I'm reading that being like. That's not bad. We that is literally every Monday morning for us. Yeah, and yeah, and or, or I mean, the, the shit we did in college and the training and the stuff we did with Roth. I mean, that shit paled by comparison. My only thing is, it was irresponsible that the coaches programmed something like that for a bunch of players who weren't fucking ready. So who failed them? Did the players fail them? Did the coaches fail them? I mean, it's like, hey, you can come out and like. Hey, I'm going to load up that bar with 1,000 pounds. You're probably going to fucking die. Well, I don't know. I mean, did you prepare the person to squat 1,000 pounds? So all I read that as is not, I mean, those workouts were by no means bad, and I firmly believe that there's probably 400,000 uh, housewives in CrossFit gyms right now that could easily squash that workout. Yeah. And I know because I owned them, in the, and I, I used to have mom, soccer moms come in, drop their kids off, come to their minivan, and crush workouts like that. But where I think is that, you know, somebody failed to prepare. And that's become this whole deal that, you know, I'm no longer going to be proactive with what I'm doing. I'm just going to be reactive. So I'm going to push everything out there, and if something bad happens, I'm going to react to it instead of being like, you know what, uh, there's going to be mines out there, so you know what I need to do? I need to prepare you to walk the minefield. And I think that's the one thing my mom and dad did very well is is they prepared us. And, and even when I went to college, I was um, – whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, I had a offensive line coach named Tom Cable, and uh, Tom Cable is by far, uh, you know, not only a, a, an impeccable coach, but an extremely, um, I guess you could say, uh, hard taskmaster. And he put us to work. And I knew when I went to the NFL, there was nothing that I was going to do in the NFL that was as difficult as what I did in college. And that's a kind of a remarkable statement. And people, whenever I told people that, I'm like, they're like, how bad was college? I'm like, this is fucking terrible. We did a lot of hard stuff. I mean, a lot of people got injured, and it was just a, um, you know, he had a philosophy that, you know, if, um, if you got to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs, and, you know, there's a reason that doctors do surgery is to fix people. So he's like, you're going to get hurt, you know, and, and I, you know, my training partner blew a pack. I mean, we did, you know, a lot of stuff, and um, with that mentality, you just, you know, prepare, and I think what we're running into is a lot of people that aren't preparing their children or their people for the demands and the rigors ahead of them as they once were. So, I mean, it's like in, in today's age, I mean, uh, Luke and I had this conversation yesterday um, talking about, you know, at what age do you introduce computers to your kids? And you want to do this deal where, you know, in some of the reading and a lot of books that I've read, there's a direct correlation between physical intelligence and mental intelligence up until the age of six. So they did pretty extensive testing, and it was more beneficial to let kids go outside, run, play, you know, chew dirt and eat, you know, bugs and do all this stuff than it is to have them sitting at home watching Baby Einstein and trying to teach them computer programming at age three years old. So I think, like, I, at least for me, I have this deal where, like, up until age of six, it's all about, you know, physical play and this. And then at some point, as a, a responsible parent, you have to arm your child with the skills that they're going to need to be successful later in life. And it's a, it's a realization today that learning to computer program, being computer savvy, understanding you know, uh, coding and, and, you know, all these other things that, you know, live on the web. I mean, that becomes a function of society. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. 
I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, you know, at some point you're like, all right, so you've done all this stuff in terms of gymnastics, working physical and this, now we got to develop this other stuff, and these are skills. It's like uh, parents that don't teach your kids uh, second languages. You know, pick a language, teach them. You know, get a tutor, have them come in one or two days a week, and, like, you know, part of the, the, the school that my girls go to is um, they have, you know, two days, a week, two days a week of Spanish language, and then it's like one day of music, and it's like a varied curriculum. But, I mean, for me, I went out and my wife and I looked at these schools and said, hey, you know, this is important. And then, you know, at six years old, like we saw, there's like a week-long uh, computer introduction thing for like six, you know, five and six-year-olds. Send them that. Let them have stuff. So, I mean, I think just like sports and, and hitting and doing all these things, you as a parent have to be proactive and arm your child with the skills they need to not only be successful but to survive the task. So you talk about kind of mentality and phys- uh, physical skills I transitioning from a football life into lacrosse at college, those athletes I went to school with, they never played or they never played football. They never lifted weights and really they didn't have kind of that uh, physical swagger or comfortable being in contact. So I'd never seen that. And I had just, uh, it's, it's all I knew was you take some hits, you get knocked down, you get back up, you push somebody down. And so I got into a lot of fights that first year, and then I was rewarded the opportunity to be team captain my sophomore year. And I was, I'm not good at lacrosse. I was never good back then. It was just a, basically a linebacker with a stick. So to see all these guys actually go through that development from their freshman year to senior year, whether I was a, a part of the team or just a coach, and just seeing these guys go from this uh, very preppy lifestyle into you actually have to work, you actually have to show up. I saw a lot of very talented individuals just fizzle out because they couldn't take the, the heat of a D3 sport. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. That was easy compared to freaking two-a-days in August in Texas. So I, I don't know where the, the disconnect, whether it's you get farther away from Texas or, or what, but uh, it's, it's just funny to me. Yeah. So I guess in closing, a lot of value just – but it's going to be a personal choice and whether or not you're – you know you're willing to prepare your kid for it or if you trust the coaching and everything around a contact sport. But uh, we we have a couple questions through Instagram as well. So, oh, yeah, we got a bunch. Yeah, they're all really easy ones, you know, and they, we've answered them uh, at length in the forums. But Which one do you want to start with, uh, this, uh, this running one? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to attack. I'm going right. to jump on it. And jump, jump on it. So uh, basically a question about, you know, uh, if you're playing a sport that requires a lot of running, and I got another uh, comment from him. He's talking about rug- rugby. Um, he said, is it counterintuitive to try and increase your squat or to even think that you will be able to work uh, accurately, accurately with high reps based on your 1RM? No. Uh, no. The no. short answer is no. And when it comes to, like, you have to look at the, the training life cycle of the athlete in the sense that, okay, so you play rugby, regardless of how talented you are, if you're an amateur athlete in terms of weightlifting, what you need to do is establish base of strength. And we do that through our linear progression model, which we talk about at length, ad nauseum, on, uh, on the forums and at the seminar. And after that, it's not necessarily about increasing your 1RMs because your 1RMs don't necessarily translate to on-field performance regardless of whether you're running or not. The 1RM, it, a 1RM like what we're doing with the form collar in testing – what is your true force output in being able to move heavy weights fast? And this goes back to Hatfield, uh, episode 68 or 69 of radio. Go listen to him. In, in, the world, in the world of sport, 
only one universe, there's only one universal truth, and it is the idea that speed is king. And even though you're doing a lot of running in rugby, and Tex, I'm going to let you take over here because I'm starting to, you know, talk in your language here. Uh, it's not about the downtime of your sport. It's about the moment in sport where you either win the game or you lose the game. And can you accelerate at top speed? And can you maintain uh, that top speed for the distances required of your sport? So the direct answer is just keep lifting heavy weights, but move the bar as fast as you can. Don't worry about increasing your 1RM. Get in, move the dirt. But Tex, I'll let you jump on on this next, and then we'll let John close out. Yeah, the, the only way to really truly understand everything Luke said is for you in one instant to be overpowered, out, out, out sprinted, just get your ass beat. Then you'll realize your 1RM doesn't mean shit. That's it. Well, I think he was asking about, you know, trying to, you know, does it make, is it counterintuitive to try to get stronger? And I would say um, if anything ever seems to be counterintuitive to strength, take a step back and realize that's wrong. Uh, the goal should be every time you walk in the weight room to increase your strength. Um, I never got better at football in the weight room. I got stronger. I got more explosive. I got, you know, all these other key factors, all these skills that allowed me to go out and translate them onto the field. Um, that's what kind of drives me a little crazy when I hear coaches talking about sports-specific training in the weight room. I'm like, well, does it involve a ball? Like, what does it involve? Like, you know, so it's just the uh, just people don't fucking know. Mm -hmm. Just that's the only way I can kind of equate it. And so I think as long as you are you know, set a goal and, you know, if it's, uh, if it's bar speed, you know, compensatory acceleration, you know, uh, whatever it looks like. But ideally, every time I walk into the weight room, my job is to increase my strength and create, a, as Luke said, a larger base of uh, to work from. And there's a thread here that we just take for granted, John, because we, I think we've lived in it, is posture position and execution of movement. And if you're moving the bar at all costs to lift as much weight as you can, then you're missing the point as well. The movement pattern should be resemblant of the positions you find yourself in sport, and that's our universal athletic position. Again, something we cover ad nauseum in, in the seminar. And if you don't know what that means, you, and you're an athlete, Sign you, need, you need help, and you need our help. And we, as far as I know, of the big names out there, uh, we're, we're really the only one integrating that into the strength and conditioning component is a universal posture and position that, makes, that will ensure improved athleticism on the field of sport. And 1RMs will they'll allow you, they'll, they'll definitely paint a picture for you to show where you will fail on the field. So that's another good reason for them. For sure. So hopefully we smash that one. Uh, Denny, read, you're, you're looking for, the, well, just read, uh, read the well, question, Denny, that you're seeing. Well, the one, um, well, the, some guy wants to know how much wood would Woodchuck chuck, or how much wood <laughs> would Wellborn chuck if Wellborn could chuck wood? Um, one. But a real big one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this guy asks, uh, where are, when are you using, when, okay, when using a ketogenic or low-carb diet, have you ever experienced really bad headaches? No. <laughs> but let's keep on that vein because there's another question. Walk through a week for people because John right now, so I guess explain the keto approach that you're, you're doing, which you can find. We offered the exact template John's doing on the site under our nutrition templates. Yeah. But now put it into a food uh, for these people. All right. Uh, it's pretty basic. 
Um, and I think people, because it's so basic, end up kind of fucking it up a little bit. Uh, we, you know, we train early in the morning, so usually get here. Um, I usually take some amino acids and put them in a, in some water and drink them over the course of my training. Uh, once I get home, uh, like this morning, for example, I took a tablespoon of butter, had four eggs, uh, two table or three teaspoons of almond butter, and a piece of cheese. And for lunch, I have uh, two, I think, two five or six ounce portions of some crock pot roast. And I have a bunch of veggies, and I will actually supplement one of those meals with or, uh, olive oil and maybe another one, uh, some MCT oil. And then I'll have a snack that will probably be some nuts, uh, maybe some cheese. Um, we'll go home and dinner, and it'll be some form of meat and some form of cruciferous vegetables. And I try to eat cruciferous vegetables at every single meal. And that's really just kind of hitting my macros, so I can really kind of get there in probably about you know three, four meals with a snack somewhere in there. And uh, pretty much eat that or some version of that with, uh, you know, fat, protein, and cruciferous vegetables for five days. And then on the weekends, we usually flip the script and come uh, get up and train early on Saturday morning, come home, and I'll usually do uh, either pancakes, oatmeal, and I'll flip the script and, you know, try to get, you know, a few thousand grams or, uh, uh, you know, a few hundred grams of carbohydrates and kind of skim my meal. And... Uh, I usually don't do a second carb day. Uh, I'll, I'll jump back on the keto on Sunday just because, um, uh, you know, and reading through Dr. DePasquale's book and just knowing myself, I, I can give myself about a full day of carbs and then I start to smooth out too much and I can notice all of a sudden I get bloat. So what I do is I eat carbs until I bloat, but what's hilarious is after I eat that initial carb meal, I'll take like 20 minutes and I always kind of go and kind of take the visual kind of deal and I'll always all of a sudden the veins come out and I actually look way leaner than I did that next that morning and then I'll kind of eat carbs and as long as I can still feel pretty warm and lean and still feel pretty good, I keep eating the carbs and the minute that it kind of goes away and I start to kind of blow it out a little bit, I'm done and I go on. I mean, I've had, uh, you know, that's happened in as little as 12 hours and I think towards last year, towards the end of uh, Jack Street, I was eating carbs for almost like 72 hours like that. So I, I would go home, I would work out on Friday, go home, and I would eat carbs all day Friday, all day Saturday, and all day Sunday, and it wouldn't be until Sunday night where I would start to start to bloat out, and then I would get back on the carbs, or uh, back on the keto. So I think, um, you know, your energy expenditure, how lean you are, and how adapted you are really kind of di uh, drives that thing. So um, there's really nothing too jiggy about it. Um, it's just basically... Uh, being able to hit your protein macros, being able to supplement with enough fat, and then for me, uh, I just eat free eat. I don't even count the number of um, you know cruciferous vegetables, which could be kale, broccoli, uh, asparagus, um, Brussels sprouts. I mean, really anything I can get that's green, kind of starchy veggies, and I just crush those all day. So on that same nutrition vein, uh, topic, and I'm going to add a little context to the question, but. Um, do you think that Rich Froning eats as much bullshit, which I'm assuming is like the junk type food, I, peanut butter uh, jelly? What is that uh, Rich Froning eat that's bad? I don't know. I don't know. Danny, can you or text Google what Rich Froning eats? But let me just make and I'll make a blanket blanket statement here. Um, uh, do you think he really does it, or is it kind of a stunt? And if so, how can he perform on the level uh, eating crap? And let me, I guess, add a little context to this. Like this is like if it fits my macros thing or. The, the uh, guys who are the highest performers who yeah. eat like shit. This goes back to Willie Wiley yeah. and then or Dr. Willie. And then just talk about some of the guys you've played with. Well, 
or, or what they ate. Well, yeah. so um, uh, everybody gets wrapped around the axle on this stuff, and I think um, as your margin of error decreases, you have to start dialing in other things. Like if you are a pretty good athlete, uh, you know, like for me, for example, I, I had a lot of good skills. Was I, you know, the most genetically gifted, you know, most skilled football player? No. So I had to, you know, not only train my ass off, I had, you know, uh, make sure my supplements and my food and all the other little things were on point so that I could reduce my margin of error. I played with other dudes who uh, pretty much ate whatever they want. I played with a guy that ate chicken McNuggets and drank Diet Cokes for every meal. I played with a lot of guys that could care less of what they ate. They just ate food, and I called it the seafood diet because they just if they saw it, they ate it. And those guys went to Pro Bowls, were some of the the greatest athletes you've ever seen, and were just physically gifted. Now, I don't know what Rich Froning uh, necessarily eats. So I'll read it but, to you from an interview, John. Yeah. Uh, a lot of whole milk, a lot of peanut butter. He doesn't really pay attention, eats what he wants, and just listens to his body. Yeah, that's to me, that's a fine diet. I mean, if you like peanut butter, I don't have a problem with peanut butter as long as you're not having some reaction to it. Uh, whole milk, awesome, eat it up. Um, I just think, you know, people have gotten so wrapped around this axle of like, you know, trying to dial nutrition, it becomes this idea of like trying to reduce that margin of error. Uh, if Rich Froning is able to eat as he wants, and it, you know, I mean, for him, he's probably doing such a high workload of training that he probably just needs to consume some calories. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guarantee Rich probably eats what he wants. Rich is also pretty young. What's he in his twenties? Like 25, 26 years old. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you this: when I was 24, 25, 26 years old, I didn't really have to sleep. I trained twice a day. I could party. I could eat. I could do everything, and it didn't really affect me. All of a sudden, I turned 30. And I started having to, like, start paying attention to more things and, like, as you get older. So I think the problem for a lot of you guys uh, looking at this is, um, you know. And just because it works for the great, and yeah. this goes across the board for everything, right, and sure. when it comes to improving performance, because it works with the best people doesn't mean it works with the bell curve. Well, well that's the – He's uh, definitely an outlier when yeah. it comes to this, well, this modality. I would completely say that Rich Froning is an outlier for the fact that he won the fourth or the CrossFit Games four times. But you know what? I mean, he's he, like he said, he's an outlier for that mobility because if it was universally applicable, he would have played in Major League Baseball or he'd be playing in the NFL or doing something. So his ability to be able to persevere through a baton death march of, of events and, and compete in CrossFit, which is kind of a mixed modal deal, uh, is probably better than anybody else on the planet right now. Um, but has that applied to anything other than CrossFit? No, it hasn't. So let me lob a softball at you, right? And this is, I think, a pertinent follow-up question. <clears throat> Do you think if he were to follow a quote-unquote dialed in, you know, food quality is paramount in balancing macros uh, and, you know, just like a nice, what we would subscribe to as a power athlete approach to eating, would he perform at the level he's performing at, if not better? Uh, I would say yes, but who knows? I mean, maybe it's like a mental deal Could be. where like he's so absorbed in his own training and what he's doing that adding one thing like all of a sudden <laughs> becoming obsessive compulsive about, you know, macros of food and all these other things from... detracts from another thing. I mean, the guy probably like, hey, man, I just trained seven times today. Fuck it. I'm going to eat this pizza, <laughs> which yeah. is, you know, is probably mentally, uh, you know, relaxing yeah, for him. I call and, it a food hug. Yeah. Sometimes I mean, you just need a food hug. Yeah. And like, you, you know, uh, but the big thing is everybody loves to speculate on this shit and like nobody knows. Yeah. Like I, you know, I mean, there were guys that, you know, you know, like in the NFL where it was like, Hey man, are you performing? I don't care what you eat, just performance. 
And I think everybody is trying to do, I mean, like I saw there's old deal, like what is Rich doing, where people like are obsessed with what is Rich Froning doing. Mm -hmm. And being like, well, yeah, that's great, but you're not Rich Froning. So you've got to figure out your own plan. And I think there's like this idea that, hey, if I can somehow mimic this guy, then I'll, no, it doesn't fucking work. Like, you know, you, you know, uh, even though we joke that everybody's the same decaying mounter and, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're not a beautiful, unique snowflake, everybody comes from a certain, you know, different, you know, genetic, you know, deal and a different adaptation. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that this is what this guy clicked. Um, you know, if CrossFit had never been invented, you know, would we know Rich Froning as anything else? Uh, you know, would he have, you know, I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, and if, what if CrossFit goes away? All of a sudden there's no more CrossFit, there's no more competitions, there's no more nothing. Are people going to stop doing this training? No. I don't think so. No, they're going to go back to the garage. <clears throat> right. You know, and they're going to selfie it themselves. It just has a name now, right? They're just going to selfie themselves more with shirtless. So I'm going to shift into a couple of soft, I think a couple lobs here. And I'll go, we'll go round table on this one. Um, if you could only train twice a week, uh, what lifts would you emphasize and how would your program change? So, Danny, I'm just going to throw you out there and I'm going to have you start and then why don't we just go round table yep, and we'll sure. close with John. I'd, I'd squat and press. Squat and press. So, yeah. So, okay, day one. Just break it into day one and day two for me. Day one, I'd go in there, I'd warm up, and then I'd back squat and probably do some sort of like isometric like torso work. Day two, I'd go in, warm up, press, press heavy weights. I'd just do like fives, maybe triples, and just kind of rinse and repeat. So, let, but let's say realistically, you think an hour is a fair amount of time well, to train? He didn't say that. He said, two, he, he said twice a week. So I would have him do work up to a heavy squat, push, pull every day he walked in. Yeah. Just kind of like we did the Bulgarian and stuff. Conditioning? And then. And then I mean, depends on what his goal is. Mm -hmm. If he wanted to condition, the next time he came in, I would actually have him do the same thing, but I'd have him do some like reps based off of the numbers that he got on that first day. Yeah. So Denny, like the Denny approach would be like, hey, I got 40 fucking minutes. What do you want me to do twice a week? Kind of oh, like the bare minimum. Tex, what would you do? Uh, easy intensity sprints, squats, day one. Uh, throw in alternate bench press or overhead press or split jerk, just something, uh, just some move some weight press. Uh, day two, I'd do either a lunge or a step up, and then just something fun and creative. Just find something I suck at, I can't do, go play some basketball, just be as creative as possible. So We're, just sprint fast and uh, do something I suck at. I'm, I'm kind of like a mix between John and Denny in the sense I would squat both days, yeah. I would press both days, and then I would just rotate like the you final chunk. never chunk. deadlift. No, absolutely not. So Luke, hang uh, on, let me. Fit. These guys need to hear <laughs> what I would do, and then Luke I would did rotate. deadlift today. And I would, I guess, I would rotate kind of like uh, what Tex would say. I would do, like, I would go fucking attack my arms, occlusion arms, on one day for the, the close, or I would do like uh, maybe a fucking spicy lactic acid assault bike deal another day. Like that final twenty minutes, I would just make either a ball buster or something fun or something, but I would think I would break it out and, like, basically you're looking at 20-minute blocks or, you know, maybe 10, 15-minute warm-up protocol, bang some weights, and then do, some, like, a 15- to 20-minute finisher, just working through it two days a week all the way through. And now this actually – there's a question about this. So let me read this fucking question since it's a great – we call it a segue. Um, let's see. Stand by. Are you looking for the deadlift question? Yeah. 
Do you have it, Denny? Dude, we got it. No, but we got to talk about that because I've been doing these strongman shows, and by far the weakest event is the fucking 18-inch deadlift. Right, the axle bar is right 18 inches from the ground, and that that position just fucking sucks for me, man. Like I've had to. Really, that's a definitely a weakness of mine. I think I can pull 500 for a few reps, but I can't pull 525. And a lot of these events, that's what it is. So, so Denny, let me read this question real quick. Um, Clint asks, in the past, you uh, uh, you guys have made a post that deadlifts are like Viagra and should be used sparingly. Uh, what do you mean and why? How do I know how much is too much? What other exercises do you use to develop the hamstrings and posterior chain for performance? So let me talk about how much is too much. All right. Anything more than once a week? No, anything more than zero times a week is too uh, much. Okay. So, so where this philosophy comes from is uh, old man saying, as God rests his soul, believe the way you train your deadlift is in the squat rack by actually squatting heavy and that the, best, and that, uh, the deadlift was like a pretty girl. You should ignore her at all costs. <laughs> and so he was hilarious about it. So we squatted. I mean, we had these marathon squat workouts twice a week. And uh, once they got done, he had preset weights on the bar. So there was like a 225, 315, 405, and then there was like a, uh, a 540 bar. I think there was like four or five bars. And they were preset collars, like locked on. Like you couldn't change the weights. You can only add them. And uh, he would like pull one, 225, one at 315, one at 405, and then he would pull the 540 for reps. And uh, and then as soon as it was done, day was fucking over. Mm -hmm. And he and so Zangus's deal was you build a deadlift by uh, ignoring it. And you know there were things like you know back squat. We used to use a top squat, safety squat. I mean reverse hypers. I mean it was the sum of the parts is how you assembled the deadlift. RDLs. R yeah RDLs, dumbbell RDLs, uh, rack pulls, shrugs, dips. Uh, you know, we used to do a bunch of heavy farmer's walks up and down his garage, uh, driveway. And so, I mean, there was a lot of things we did. And I always asked him, and I'm like, well, why do you ignore the deadlift? And his thing was that the deadlift is so hard in the central nervous system that you can effectively overload it, which affects and fucks up all your training. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, and he made a comment. He said, Olympic lifters squat every day, but those guys don't deadlift very often. So, the deadlift was part of just a strength check just to kind of make sure everything was headed in the right direction and kind of move it. So um, from there, uh, I think it was Dave Tate or Louis Simmons or something. We talked about um, central nervous system efficiency and the ability to recover post-heavy deadlift, uh, you know, was up to 21 days for some athletes. So um, we just have used, you know, we deadlift once a day we, or once a week. I mean, and for even a professional, we pull heavy maybe once every couple of weeks. And, you know, in our, in our grindstone stuff, it's rare that I end up going under three reps on the deadlift, um, you know, for the most part, just because, or I'm, I'm sorry, on Jack Street and even on the field strong, just because I know personally how physically taxing it is to pull singles on the deadlift. And for posterior chain accessory work, you can step up correctly, you can lunge correctly, and you can really push your butt back into your hamstrings. So that's that's a big thing that people that we've observed, people don't know how to lunge. They don't want to step up. They no, they don't. And, and, and part of the reason is, um, you know, we've gotten so hyper-focused on this idea of hinging. The bilateral hip hinge is the, I mean, it's really our most dominant movement pattern and one that most people are emphasizing. I mean, a bilateral, you know, hinging is deadlifting, cleaning, squatting, uh, you know, any, any type of pulling, you know, box jumping, kettlebell swing, kipping pull-ups. I mean, everything involves some form of this bilateral hinging. 
and all of a sudden you start pe- you know having people get onto one leg, move and you know lunge and step, and it fucks them up because it's outside of what they've normal pattern. And you know, I mean, I, I remember arguing with Mark Ripto about this, where he's like, "Ah, oh, lunges are fucking stupid. They make people sore." And I'm like, "Yeah, why do you get sore?" And, you know, and then we kind of argued. I'm like, because you're using a bunch of fucking muscles that you've never used in all the hinging. And I talked about hinging, and he's like, oh, it's fucking stupid. I'm like, why? You didn't think of it? And so Rip and I have argued about that for a long, long time. But, you know, you also have to remember his book's called Starting Strength, and, you know, there's a reason why, you know, we're not talking about weightlifters, and we're talking about athletes and, you know, the ability to be on one leg and step and put one foot in front of the other. If you Like I always said, dude, if your program just involves a back squat, it's an incomplete program. So. John, what do you say when you hear things like uh, people saying, like, if you improve your clean pulling dynamically, that that translates into, like, improving your deadlift? Like, if, if you deadlift 500 and your clean's like half of that and you get better at pulling that faster and faster and faster, and they can, you know, and I've read the science, I've seen this argument, and it makes sense when you look at it like that, but... Then there's also something to be like when you, if you've done a month straight of just like cleans at 250, when you go to pick up 500 pounds, it feels like fucking 500 pounds. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and part of that thing goes back to, you know, when, when Zhang has talked about the, the strength check, that you have to deadlift heavy to check your strength, to make sure your grip's fine, to put that, that load. The problem is, you know, anybody that's like, oh, I deadlift heavy three days a week. I mean, those people will fucking implode. But yet, you know, you have people like Travis Mash, who has his squat every day thing going right now, where those kids are absolutely fucking destroying it. But what are they doing? They're squatting heavy every day. You're watching him snatch, clean, and jerk. Uh, I haven't seen any of his, um, other than his powerlifting team, really deadlifting heavy. So, you know, and, and I, you know, and I know John Bros and those guys, you know, that squat, you know, daily three times a day. I know that they, deadlift every so often just as a strength check just to make sure nothing you know everything's fucking going in the right direction and that's what George really called it he was like you know we build we're going to build all of our lifts you know through the squat and you know different bars you know we used like a, a top squat we used safety squat I mean all these different things and then you know what sure enough I mean we did a shit ton of one arm dumbbell rows I mean that was another big favorite him pull-ups um, you know, there was a ton of accessory work, and then, you know what, you just go and you kind of assemble the parts, you go over there and check your strength, and then hope, you know, everything kind of pans out, but one thing I'll tell you this, and uh, I'm, as I'm sitting here looking at my hands, uh, if we don't deadlift, like, I feel like my hands get fucking soft, like, all of a sudden, like, when we pull those deadlifts with that nasty-ass rogue neural west side bar today, mm-hmm. like, my hands are burning, like, I was driving home being like, fuck, and then, and as soon as that happens, you know, I tell myself, we haven't fucking deadlifted enough. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and we'll, you know, we do a lot of rack pulls, but for some reason, I mean, we, we did heavy barbell shrugs today too. Like rack pulls don't really tap me out the way that like a fucking low four inch deficit deadlift, like that is by far the worst fucking exercise ever invented on the planet. And I know if something sucks that bad and I hate it that much, I need more of it in my life. And I'm going to jump on, I think another lob here. Um, <clears throat> Uh, John, I'm in the military following CrossFit football. If I was going to sub any of the Metcons during the week for a run, you know, like PT type stuff, what what days of the week would you recommend? Uh, Wednesday and Saturday. Wednesday and Saturday. Easy one. And reason being, you got... Yeah. When, just Wednesday and Saturday. You got that free time throughout the week. Um, let's see. Was there anything else to that one? No. Boom. Okay, so now I'm going to jump on to... 
the streety question here, guys. So, John, with a background in not only training while in the NFL, but also at the collegiate level, what do sports medicine staffs need to do better? Predominantly with regard to the transaction of an athlete from a rehabilitative state to a performance state. Uh, how does the uh, athletic training crew and strength and conditioning coach uh, bridge the gap uh, bridge the gap better between the distance that it occasionally does? The question is from being uh, this question being from a more predominantly hands-on and progressive uh, athletic trainer. So the one thing that doctors and athletic trainers need to do is stay the fuck out of the weight room. Um, I think more problems have been caused by a bunch of doctors that have never lifted weights and a bunch of uh, fat, pudgy, overweight ATCs going in the weight room and trying to uh, dictate technique and what an athlete should be doing. Um, I, case in point, uh, I show up to Cal, and you know they took us through the physical and the whole deal, and uh, I had a team doctor tell me that no athlete should ever squat below parallel and actually told me that they were going to uh, uh, do some form of punishment if they saw me squat below parallel. Um, I always had a real good, what you guys would you know call a you know real deep, nice squat, and instantly was told that I could not squat below parallel because it was going to be damaging to my knees by a fucking doctor. And it was propagated and supported by the athletic trainer. And uh, I go back and I think to myself, why the fuck was a skinny... Um, doctor who has never fucking lifted weights that only is propagating what somebody else told him uh, coming in the weight room over what our strength coach who you know was a very competent very good person and so you know the other thing is um, I've rarely seen an athletic trainer that was in good physical shape and yet those guys all went out and they realized like oh hey I can be an ATC I also can get my CSCS and now I can be a certified strength coach and those guys should just stick to taping ankles and making sure that ice and stem is hooked up and get you a bag of ice and do a little bit of ultrasound. And really that's the, the extent of their knowledge with the modalities. Um, to me, uh, you know, I've had a lot of great trainers and, uh, and we're just really good friends, you know, over the years. But the best trainers that I've ever been around were the ones that realized, like, hey, man, I'm an ATC. This is what I do. Uh, I need to, to make sure that I work with a really good strength coach that has his head out of his fucking ass. And you know what? I don't need to set a single foot in that place. And the worst strength coaches and the worst doctors that I've ever been around are the ones that think they know about strength conditioning and, more importantly, um, about human movement and understanding how the body works in terms of, like, athletic stuff. They have no fucking idea. I've gotten so much bad advice. Case in Another case in point, I took a helmet to the shin um, in the opening game against Tennessee uh, a bunch of years ago, and I broke my fibula clean in half. Uh, they cast me for about five days, and the doctor told me that the fibula is a non-weight-bearing bone that only supports 12% of the weight. So based on that, I should be have no problem going back and playing. And five weeks later, I went out there with a broken leg that every time I took a step, I could feel the bones move and uh, ended up, the splintering of the effect ended up causing um, uh, a pretty bad spasm, and I ended up rupturing my calf. And so if you guys ever see or, you know, on uh, I was on Mark Bell's thing and these, his fucking YouTube douchebags were like, oh, look how small his calf is. Yeah, I fucking rolled it up like a Venetian blind. And um, the calf ruptured and it came off. I pulled my sock out and I was like, fuck, my calf is fucked up. And you know what the doctor said? Well, can you get up on your toes? And I was like, yeah. So I kind of got up on my tippy toes. He's like, you're fine. <laughs> and so I went back out there and played at the end. They took off my sock. My whole fucking calf was all bruised up. And the doctor's like, well, we can put you in surgery. And he kind of went through it. Or you can just fucking live with it. And I was like, you fucking piece of shit. You know, like, 
these problems, like, it, it, you know what it is? It's like, I, I think, I think, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. But when you get into professional sports, it's like protect your bank wallet or protect your fucking bank account. So the problem that I've seen and what really happens in a lot of professional sports and college sports all over is people, you know, people should know what they don't know. The problem is they don't know what they don't know. So you have a trainer that thinks he knows what he's doing when his, his good job is making sure that I got good heel locks and to have a good ankle tape. And he goes in the weight room and wants to all of a sudden start dictating what athletes should be doing in the weight room, and it's completely fucked up. Or even worse, just have some fucking pencil neck doctor that has no fucking idea what he's doing going in there. So um, I personally have uh, a lot of dislike uh, for um, you know doctors and for trainers, just for the mere fact that uh, you know I was around a lot of them that you know thought that they knew a hell of a lot more than they really did. And I played for, and I worked with some great ones that actually stayed in their lane, know exactly what they could fucking do and what they couldn't do, and let uh, strength coaches go out there and you know help the athletes. So, um, stay in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Stay in your wheelhouse. But you know, that's just like everything, man. Um, and I tell these guys all the time, ego has killed more people than cancer. And when you get into professional sports, you have a head coach who has an ego. You got a head trainer that has an ego. You got all these people that all of a sudden think that they're out there curing cancer and fucking humanity and don't realize that they're just part of the fucking circus for professional sports, which is basically entertainment. And they think they're out there doing something like fucking groundbreaking and being like, dude, Let's fucking take a step back, unfuck yourself, and realize what you are and what you aren't. And I think people just aren't realistic with themselves. And so um, I, you know, for much of my NFL career, I didn't go in the in the training room other than to get my ankles taped and to get tape. And if there was an issue, I mean, I, I sprained an ankle real bad uh, in Kansas City, and they had me in there doing fucking three times a day, other ice and stem and ultrasound. It didn't do anything. And one of the old docs who was uh, there on game day, I saw him come in, and I knew he, he was a uh, – uh, not only a doc, but he also um, had some horses and livestock and whatever. And I hit him up, and I was like, "Doc, um, you're a, a you know horse race guy." And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got all these friends that are you know horse docs." I'm like, "You got any DMSO?" And he kind of shoots me this look, and uh, he's like, "Yeah." I was like, "Cause this ankle won't heal, and I need you to give me some DMSO." So he uh, next day came back and brought me DMSO, and I had him put it on my ankle. And you should have seen the look on these young trainers' faces. When all of a sudden this doctor's rubbing this cream and they're like, what is this stuff? The fact that these young trainers had never heard of DMSO, he put it on my ankle, wrapped it up. Next day, swelling gone, played in the game. They thought this shit was witch doctor. And I looked at him and I was like, dude, you guys have all this fucking expensive equipment and it's fucking bullshit. And uh, ice and stem, ultrasound, all that stuff is fucking horseshit. And I never went in the weight room. The only thing I'd go in there was for contrast baths to get some tape and do that. Uh, I went and I got chiropractic care because um, even though, um, you know, the fact that all the team docs and all the, you know, supposedly ortho uh, doctors think that chiros are witch doctors just makes me believe in them even more. <laughs> um, because, you know, when you're a doc and the only thing you can offer me is surgery or a pill, I think you're a fucking quack. So uh, I'd go get chiropractic work, make sure I was in alignment. And, you know, there's a lot of charlatans, a lot of bad chiros out there, but I actually was some, with some pretty good ones, did a little bit of ART work. And for the most part, it was pretty good. Uh, the only time that I got fucked up or when things went wrong is when I either had to go to the training room or I had some dipshit fucking ATC or doctor get involved in my training. I'll tell you one of the biggest faults I've seen just at the college level is communication. The athletic trainers, they tell the strength coach one thing, they tell the athlete another, and then the sport coach another thing. So then sport coach, uh, I've seen it just destroy strength and conditioning relationships where the strength coach only believes the athletic trainer. He can do this, he can do that, versus what the strength coach is seeing. 
So just a loss of trust by failure to communicate just clear, concise, and constructive information. And also seeing a just a jump towards the knife. So John, I'm sure you can, you're more experienced in terms of surgeries and injuries in that respect, but when a strength and conditioning budget is being cut because too many athletes are going and flying all over the place for surgery, I think that just actually a athletic trainer maybe going into the weight room or at least having a good conversation with a strength coach of how to freaking move can solve a lot of problems that exist. I agree, man. I mean, you know, there's just a lot of lack of education and just a lot of uh, lack of understanding of movement. Um, you know, we, we look at things very, very basic and very simple. And when you take it a step back, I mean, can you do this? Can you do this? I mean, uh, they had, uh, when I was at Cal, the, the doctor who was our supposed team doctor was the GP who had done a, a like one year fellowship as an, as an orthopedist. And so she was the one that would evaluate your injury. And, um, she was the fucking worst. Uh, so bad so that when Cal asked me to donate later on, I told him I would only donate if she was no longer a part of the program because I saw not only so many misdiagnoses, uh, but I saw so many fucking injuries gone unchecked. I fucked my shoulder up, and I went in there, and she checked it. She's like, you're fine, and I literally kept going in because my shoulder kept popping in and out, and she was like, basically was like, you need to toughen up, and I'm like, oh, this fucking lady, and so sure enough, uh, I go in there, or I see the orthopedist. I'm like, man, can you check my shoulder out? He's like, yeah, I think you have a torn labrum. And so he uh, puts an MRI, and sure enough, my fucking labrum's torn, and they have to go in there, and uh, they cleaned it up. And she was fucking pissed at me. And I was like, and I remember she was like, you know, that was fucking, I was like, hey, it's not my fault you're fucking incompetent. And you know what, like, I, I, I'm really tired of this shit where, you know, all of a sudden, because you went to medical school and because you've gone down this road, you're all-knowing, you're, 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 you're infallible, you know everything, I'm this great, I have this DR in front of my name. And honestly, uh, over the years, the minute you tell me you're a doctor, I'm like, eh. and it's because, you know, you are steeped in whatever knowledge was presented at that moment. And, you know, that's why, you know, I stopped going to doctors long ago and I go and visit Tom Inkledon and different other people that are researchers that actually are on the cutting edge of this stuff. And, um, you know, I always laugh, you know, when people ask Tom, I'm like, Tom has a great clinic and he has a ton of doctors that work with him that do exactly what he tells them to do. And it's because that's all they have. And so I, I had a terrible experience at Cal. I mean, the lady is the fucking worst. I, I wouldn't even, I, I hope she's still not there, but she probably is. And, um, you know, there was a lot of terrible misdiagnosis of injuries. Uh, there was a lot of players that, that, you know, things got missed. Players got cut when they shouldn't have. I mean, just a lot of bad shit just because of incompetence. And I think, um, you know, that's because they're the biggest deal. And then you have people that, you know, want to safeguard and protect their little fiefdoms because of ego instead of being like, you know, hey, uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, you know, because it's very hard for a lot of people to be like, maybe I'm not the best. Maybe I'm not the right person. Maybe there's somebody that knows something for me. And I mean, fuck, I was fucked up. And she's fucking motherfucking me about going overhead. And I'm like, well, you fucked it up. And now, and because I went and saw the doctor, you're fucking mad at me? Fuck you. And I think, like, that's the attitude. And the problem is a lot of athletes don't have it. I mean, I can still remember going in the weight room and the doctor coming in because somebody went and told him that I was squatting below parallel. I can't, and I fucking remember it. And they're like, no, no. And, like, the doctor gave me all these reasons. And I remember thinking, if our knees weren't designed to go into that position, then why didn't evolution just fucking make it not happen? Why, you know, why is it? You know, so now you're talking about partial rate. I mean, it's just, it's fucking bullshit. So I'm going to take us out to negative town. And uh, we're gonna Sorry, I, I get pissed off when I start talking about doctors and trainers. <laughs> fucking quacks of all quacks. 
Uh, so our boy Joaquin. If, if anybody that's a doctor or trainer listening to this, I'm really sorry, but um, fucking pull your heads out of your ass. So to, to qualify, the doctors and trainers that you've been exposed to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I shouldn't make blanket claims like that. Uh, so Joaquin hit us up, wants to know, uh, he, he's rehabbing a knee. Any tips? Um, he's seen some videos with monster bands, and he's been doing some mobile, like K-Star, I'm assuming, because he's mobilizing. Uh, so kind of the supple leopard stuff. But uh, what type of movement patterns would reinforce proper mechanics and strengthening of the knee? He's being diagnosed with jumper's knee. All right, so jumper's knee is a common diagnosis for what's known as patellar tendonitis. So patellar tendonitis is where all of a sudden the patella, which is the tendon that runs on the front part of the knee that connects your quadriceps down to your lower leg, and there's a, um, a, a patella that sits underneath it. So that tendon, and if you reach and touch the front of your knee, I'm sure everybody here has at some point felt the hot patella, Jumper's knee is when that becomes overused. Uh, jumper's knee is called jumper's knee because it happens for a lot of people that jump. Um, the bigger thing and the bigger reason that we've seen where patellar tendonitis happens comes more from a weakening of the quad. So if the quad isn't firing or you're not able to activate and protect your quad, then all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of issues with it. So uh, what we tend to do is we teach better mechanics. Um, you know, for me, I would go up and see Dr. Bueller and have him do some of his muscle activation technique, uh, aim it, and uh, or hook up the compacts and do a bunch of EMS on that quad and get it to fire, um, which I think everybody should be doing in terms of recruiting motor units. So I think what happens with the uh, the deal is, uh, you know, you can't protect yourself. So all of a sudden now you're uh, eccentrically loading the knee. You're getting a bunch of uh, patellar tendonitis, and then as it starts, all of a sudden patellar tendonitis is kind of like you know, uh, a Saturday at, you know, when Luke goes to the bar, it starts one drinks, he's having a good time, and next thing he's into this thing, 30 drinks, and it's Tuesday, and you're in a fucking, in, in a bad place. So the same thing with tendonitis. What you have to do is you have to take a big step back, and you have to let it calm down. You have to let all the inflammation and everything, and you can do that through through ice. You can do it through taking some, you know, a leaf, uh, just resting it and getting it down, and then you have to start back real slow, starting out with doing just some, you know, just basic isometric holds, some leg extensions, just trying to get that quad to fire, and then basically learning to not dump your knee so far over your toe, because I'm, I'm imagining a lot of people, especially listening to this, being Olympic lifters, and in the CrossFit community, when they squat, uh, especially, you know, doing a lot of Olympic movements, you're real upright, the knees are really far over the toe, so if that knee gets really over the toe with a ton of loading, you're going to get some tendonitis, and it just becomes... You know, one of those deals where once it happens, it's more, uh, you know, the frequency of it coming back and the availability of it coming back become even more, and it's just, just kind of how it happens. So my deal yeah. is take a step back. Um, the other key one is you can do some, like, terminal knee extensions just to kind of strengthen that quad. Uh, and, you know, we've done stuff where you put on the compacts, get the, uh, the VMO and the, the uh, lateral sweep to fire, hook up and just do terminal knee extensions. Um, I try to keep all of my movements close-chained. What that means is foot pound on the floor. There's no better way to exasperate patellar tendonitis and jumper's knee than doing like leg extensions, um, and you know doing a lot of lunging where your knee's real far over the toe or real deep squats where you're you know shoving the knee far over the toe and kind of trying to bounce your butt off of your heels. So uh, you know what you have to do is take a step back in your training and just really um, contain the tendonitis get to go away and then slowly slowly come back. So but it's, that's it's slowly coming back, but then also learning how to move properly. So there's this website, uh, powerathletehq.com, and if you search plyometrics or ACL injury prevention, then we cover all those things. So it's, it's just teaching you how to move properly, how to land properly, how to jump properly, 
So uh, after the rest, once it kind of flares down, then this is your opportunity to re-educate your body how to move properly so it doesn't come back. And you know what? Um, I can kind of like relate a story with that. There's a, I'm working with a client now. She, she likes to run all these Spartan races. And she, when she came to me, she's like, yeah, you know, my, my knee, I got runner's knee. And she's like 25 years old, and I was like, man, you know that you're too young to be having like that kind of that kind of issue, right? Like, um, runner's knees, like PFPS, like the patellofemoral pain syndrome, and like some people think it's like uh, it could be fixed with like biomechanical movement approach, or the other school of thought is just like weak quads and like these overly tight hamstrings and stuff like that. I just kind of started with like the biomechanical approach. I, I didn't, I hadn't seen her run, but more, um, I, I could tell just by watching her move that she could improve like her hamstring awareness. And John, after listening to you talking about like the the Olympic lifting squatting, um, she had done that as well. These, she kept wanting to bounce everything, bounce, 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 and those squats and the knees pitching real forward. So part of like her kind of the approach we took was really uh, strengthening those hamstrings. You know, I only wanted her to squat just like an inch or two below parallel and keep her knees back. And then we did a lot of like single leg box work, just kind of like single leg lowers and trying to get that knee stable and really get that hamstring working to to protect that. And uh, she went and ran like a 30k. Uh, a few weeks ago with really no kind of running running prep and didn't feel any of that pain. So I took that as like a good, we were going in the right direction, right? And just just took that approach alone. And I, I thought of that as I was hearing, uh, as I read this guy's question and hearing well, the, um, well, Okay, so the uh, two things. One, um, years ago, we ta I taught a seminar in Austin, Texas at CrossFit Central, and the dude showed up there, and I remember he um, he kind of came in. He had, uh, you know, we were rapping a little bit, big dude, big, pretty strong guy, and I remember, you know, him coming over and rapping me a little bit, and he's like, I only came here to have you help me with my squat. I was like, what's wrong with your squat? He goes, man, I have the worst shooting pain uh like you've ever seen. And I'm like, why? I'm like, he's like, dude, I, it, you know, it's terrible. We have all these issues. Uh, you know, I'm getting all this fame. I've, I've gone and worked with all these different people and nobody can cure it. I'm like, great, let's see it. So he puts on, you know, and I, I knew it was bad when he threw on like a double, uh, the patellar band and the idea of a patellar band is it puts pressure on the patella. So kind of can kind of cut it in half and, you know, help you a little bit. So he throws on two of these, you know, patella straps. And I'm like, Ooh, two patella straps. I'm like, let me see a rep and watch this guy. From a kind of squatted position, he didn't. He doesn't push his hips back. He just falls straight down <laughs> and bounces off of his calves, and and he goes up. And I'm like, Ooh. so he kind of he keeps doing this. I'm like, he, we're we're gonna squat together. So I kind of getting close to him, like we're gonna like cha cha cha. And as he goes squat, I pull him back into me and get him to sit back. And as he's sitting back, all of a sudden his knee starts trailing back, and as he got to the very bottom, I like kind of kept pulling him, and he like barely could get out of the hole with 225. And uh, uh, he gets to the top, and I'm like, how'd, how'd that feel? He's like, I didn't have any knee pain, but I feel really weak. And I'm like, well, what you're doing? And I talked about driving into the quads in this. And so we basically, uh, you know, over the course of about five sets, fixed his squat, and the guy had no more knee pain. Fast forward like three years, I think we're at the CrossFit Games, and the guy walks over to the booth, and he was like, 
honestly, the best $795 I ever spent. He's like, uh, that day squatting, I have not had any knee pain since then, and my knees are totally healthy. And I'm like fucking helping people. And, um, you know, and people ask me, like, well, how do you know about this? Uh, I had a ruptured patellar tendon. So talk to you a little bit about some fun. I tore my ACL in 1996. Uh, they pushed me back on my rehab too fast, and they took the middle third out of my patellar tendon. I developed really bad patellar tendonitis in my right knee, which obviously had been damaged during the surgery. But I also developed tendonitis in my left knee from coming back too fast in my rehab and favoring. So uh, they did a bunch of different tricks to try to get the you know, tendonitis. My right knee ended up healing up fine, but I could never get the tendonitis out of my left knee. So they, um, they got this new treatment called um, um, iontophoresis. And what it is is it's a pad where they take dexamethasone, which is cortisone, and they put it in the pad, and then they put it over the skin, and then they hook it up to electrodes, and they soak in the dexamethasone to try to calm down the inflammation. Um, they did this to my knee, I want to say, like three or four times a week, maybe four, four or five times a week for, like, months. And finally it calmed down. Uh, I end up... You know, having no problems, I go to the NFL. First game of my NFL career, I ruptured my patellar tendon, and the doctor went in and he said, dude, your tendon looked like the tendon of an 80-year-old man. It splintered apart, had all these nodules. They cut it up. They had to put a ton of incisions into it just to get it to bleed, stitch it all up, got it all back together. And uh, I remember talking to the doctor. He's like, man, would you know why your tendon looked that bad? And I was like, well, the only thing I could think of was this iontophoresis. And he's like, oh, yeah, we use that. He's like, but we never do more than uh, nine treatments over the course of maybe five or six weeks. He's like, how often did you do it? I'm like, I did it like four or five times a week for months. And the doctor kind of looked and he's like, well, fucking hopefully this thing heals up. And I ended up healing up and never having a patellar tendonitis again. And at that point I realized what the problem was, how these to fix. And so uh, I have not only had severe tendonitis, fixed it, ruptured a tendon and had it stitched back together and then came back to play another nine years in the NFL. So I think in terms of like knee pain, knee injury and battling through some stuff, I am I'm pretty, uh, I got probably more experience than any trainer or doctor out there doing that. So Dex had to jump off. So I'll give okay. him his, he asked me to ask him or say one liner. It's Joaquin, it's probably not what you're doing, but how you're doing it. And I think that's what it kind of all comes down to the moral story of what John working with this guy on his squat. It's like, and it's not just getting hips below parallel and then standing the weight up. It's what happens in between. And that's everything we fucking preach. But uh, I guess segue, similar subject. We got a question. What is the most overrated cue for the squat and the most underrated cue for the squat? In what your opinion. Be, what would be the most under? Okay. Oh, can I, I'm just, can I succinctly answer? Yeah. The, the one that I, I mean, uh, in terms of cueing, fuck, I mean, I, I, I don't like, um, I guess I'm going to qualify it with most misinterpreted cue is hips back because that typically leads to a hip flick. Yeah. The most overused cue is knees out and the most underrated cue is squat. <laughs> The uh, the one cue I always liked, which seemed to really uh, is always makes people laugh. And so when we talk about like knees out, I think where people are fucked up is they actually try to drive the knees out. And where actually that knees out comes from is actually the hip and trying to spin the femur in the foot. So it's actually not knees out. It's trying to like drive the knees out in the way we get people to cue it is I actually try to, I put my hands on the side of their knees and I try to collapse it and I get them to spin from the, from the femur mm -hmm. and that becomes a better cue. And the other one is, uh, 
uh, getting people to activate and squeeze their glutes. So the cue I always like is pretend there's a walnut in your butt cheeks and you're going to try to crack it. And all of a sudden when they screw it and they squeeze their butt, I think that does a lot of work. Um, you know, I think with the squat, uh, you know, I'm just trying to think of what cues people. I mean, the one well, that- I think, you know, also quote unquote cueing a squat is kind of like, uh, you know, using pickup lines at a bar. Like you can't just say there's one gold no. pickup line. You got to understand the situation, see what's going on. Right? Well, especially for me uh, in the squat, I like tactile cueing. Like I like to actually like try to like put my hands on people, mm-hmm. which is similar to how you pick girls up at the bar. I realized long ago that actually uh, a firm, you know, you know, like grab of the arm, gra- grab of the arm and a grunt works better than like, Hey, what's your sign? <laughs> <clears throat> so that, uh, but the, uh, like, yeah, the, the squat's one of those things where you would think uh, that something as basic as just hinging down would, would cause so much problem. And I think the problem is, is coaches end up invariably throwing so many cues at people that it ends up fucking them up. Yeah. So Confusing. I think you can over-cue the squat. Any Anything else on that, Denny? Oh, man. I, I'm right there with you on the knees out one. I mean – it should almost be like knees not in. If, if you're going to say anything, say that, right? Because no I've seen, right? I, yeah, like I've seen where, yeah, the valgus knee, you have to give that cue, you know, and then I've seen where people don't even need to do it and they do it because they, they've had other people just kind of like fucking drive that in their skull. So now they actually have a decent looking squat, but they're purposely you know, as they descend, they're driving those knees out when they don't even need to do it anymore. So I, I kind of like the, you know, like knees not in, you know, mm-hmm. and I like the idea, like what John says, of putting his hand there and trying to, trying to smash, smash them together. Right. Like that's yeah. a, that's a, that's a good one. And again, like there's within and spread the floor. I, yeah. I, have, I've always liked that one. And I, yeah. I find that I use it more when I see people's like ankles kind of do like this inverse kind of thing, right? Like, yeah, okay. You can have tight ankles, but if I kind of mention that, like pretend like you're trying to spread the floor through like flat feet and all that, I bet they keep, they don't do that. Right. Right. Like they, they can grab it, grab, keep their feet flat and actually everything looks pretty. You know, if, if they keep doing it, then yeah. Okay. You got super tight ankles, but I've always liked spread the floor for that reason. And the, the whole queuing structure that we're going through is something we also like there, there w- there's a system to it in terms of your mechanical queuing to your tactile queuing to your performance perspective queuing. And when you're training athletes, you need, if you're giving the same cue three years later, then you're doing something, your coaching isn't working. Queuing is a temporary fix. It's not something you should be hitting up all the time. So that's another thing on this, just the philosophy behind it that I think is overmissed uh, or is, is overlooked, you know, which is a frustrating thing. I know because someone listening to this has probably been a fucking coach who has one of their like OG clients who is still doing the same shit wrong. And you're like, how can I fucking connect with this guy? But that's not a queuing problem. That's a that's a culture and connection problem with you as a coach and your athlete, you know. So, but that's a fucking right. good discussion. No, it's like if it's like what Tech said that one time in that show where he's like, if if you're gonna stand there and all you have is like a a a a right, like and it's not working, you better go. You better have a B and a C to use, and it doesn't have to be uh, 
an audio cue, something else, right? But yeah, yeah. You can't, you're just going to get frustrated. Your athlete's going to get frustrated, and then you're going to get nowhere, right? Yeah. So you better you better have like a B and a C in your tool belt. So, John, I'm going to uh, flip the switch here. Uh, in regards to you contracting with NSW, Naval Special Warfare, uh, what did your work with the group consist of? And what kind of training template would you recommend for someone in that line of work in comparison to the power athlete template? Oh, uh, I went in as a performance consultant, so I would go in and do, you know, uh, talks for NSW. Um, you know, I did them everywhere from, you know, uh, south. I mean, went up to, uh, you know, obviously Virginia Beach. I mean, out to Hawaii and all over and everywhere in between. And the work was always about maximizing performance. So my deal, and obviously you guys know through Power Athlete, is a holistic approach. The idea of, you know, sleep. Uh, you know, make sure you're getting blood testing uh, done. So we, you know, know what markers to look for, you know, what are you doing for your food? What are you doing for your supplements? What does your training look like? Um, the big thing and the big misconception, and I was fortunate to go out on some training ops with those guys and be able to go out and actually, uh, you know, work with those guys and see what the demands are is, um, you know, this idea of sport specific. Um, you know, I wouldn't train the guys from NSW anywhere, any different than I would train the guys that walked in here to power athlete. Uh, they would, uh, lift weights, they would sprint, they would run, they would do all the things that we'd ask them to do, make sure they were strong and stable with their trunk and, um, you know, basically prepare them for the demands. I was real fortunate to work with Andy Stumpf, uh, when he was injured and obviously, you know, continually with, uh, with Dave Brewer, who's uh, one of the chiefs for SEAL Team 4. And, you know, the training always looked like, um, how do we, you know, minimize, uh, exposure for injuries? How do we make sure they're strong and stable and fast? And at the end of the day, uh, do they have the tools available to them to apply to their training? Now, there's no way for me to prepare those guys to all of a sudden put on a, you know, a 90 pound pack of rockets and hike for, you know, five clicks through, you know, a 12,000 feet elevation and then be able to drop their stuff, run into the fight, get back and then be able to, you know, get out on their uh, um, exit. Uh, there's no way for me to mimic that training in, in here. So I'm not going to do it. What I'm going to do is make sure that my athletes are healthy. They're strong, they're stable, they're fast, and they have enough capacity be able to have uh, the ability to go into any situation and have applications. So, um, you know, and I just actually responded to a, a military guy the other day who asked a similar question. And my deal is, you know, what is your sport specific training look like? If your sport specific training looks like, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, then you know what, don't try to replicate that in the weight room. I think what you what people really get lost in is this idea that the weight room is a one size fits all that I can train for all these things within the confines. You can't. There's no, there's nothing in the weight room that's going to prepare you to go out and, 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 you know, hike five clicks in through the mountains. You know, it's going to prepare you to hike five clicks through the mountains, hiking five clicks through the mountains, put on your pack, go out and take a five mile walk. However you got to do it, drag it, drag a sled, do whatever you need to do, take your dog out there and actually prepare. Um, it's like, uh, you know, the analogy which works for the military guys. Uh, I don't get to the range as often as I want. So I dry fire, you know, I, I, you know, put in my holster, you know, uh, inside the waistband, outside the waistband, whatever my rig, and I work on dry firing because I know that I don't have the ability to go to the range a couple times a week. It might be once a month at most, but I can at least dry fire three or four times a week and still be proficient in terms of you know the purchase on my gun, how I draw it out, push away all the different cues. But the minute that I go to the range and all of a sudden I mimic and I shoot, it's all of a sudden real practice. And I'm not trying to prepare myself for a gun battle with dry firing. So why would you prepare yourself for your job just in the weight room is, is a good analogy. But yeah, dry firing was uh, extremely 
um, beneficial for me in terms of like trigger control and trigger management. And I got that from uh, my buddies in NSW when I was learning to long range shoot, they talked about, you know, Hey, I just want you to set up and, you know, uh, you know, just do dry firing to learn, you know, exactly where the creep is and, you know, hold your gun and be basically worry about it or, uh, you know, worry on that trigger management, especially on the long range shooting, which is actually to me is a, you know, really valuable skill set to have, but even the pistol stuff. So, um, yes, I dry fire, I lift weights. When we do sports specific, we go out and we do it and head to the range and do those things. So that's just a good analogy for it. So I guess in comparison to the power athlete template ultimately is, I mean, it's not that since you can't replicate one for one, the demands doesn't mean it should discourage you from training. No. It's lunch, step squat, yeah. be strong, be a, an efficient and safe mover. And well, what, what people forget is, uh, the collegiate template for CrossFit football was, was written for Andy Stumpf. And when I had to go and do the, or when, when I was contracted to do the stuff with NSW, uh, the template that I designed and I have a talk, which is the talk I did for those guys. It's basically how to become bulletproof, uh, is really the talk in it, it shows an early power athlete template very similar to what you guys see on Field Strong. Yeah. So imagine that. So technically, you could say Cross of Football and Field Strong were first developed for a lot of our military athletes and then extrapolated out because those were really the markets that forced me to have to think outside the box and offer something a little bit different. So, on the, I guess, programming vein here, um, we got a question from our buddy Josh. Uh, fit fitness genes who, you know, we've tinkered with that. We found them to be pretty, pretty jiggy with what we do and giving you kind of indicative and parameters and propensities about training, diet, sleep, things like that. Uh, but they're now offering programs that pair with your testing. And he's curious, does, could or will power athlete have uh, the ability to pair programming with fitness genes testing? Yeah. Dan Reardon, who started uh, fitness genes, good buddy of ours, um, when we came on board, asked us to help us develop his technology, a little bit of his understanding. And I actually wrote a, a four, uh, four week uh, athletic training program for fitness genes based off of a bunch of different, uh, you know, predispositions that, you know, I, we, when we sat down in his office and we started kind of, I guess we call them genotypes, uh, mm-hmm. broke them into different, like, okay, what about this guy? What about this? What about this? And based off of all their kind of deals. And there was a, a certain set of, you know, uh, Adelaide's that if you kind of align them right, I was kind of able to be like, Hey, just for these guys, what would you write? And I wrote a four day a week program for those guys. That's a four week deal uh, with the idea that this would be a great introduction for people to, for athletic training. And at the end of that four weeks, they could transition into something like field strong. So field strong is written um, for, you know, obviously athletes, I mean, within a certain idea, but what I do is I kind of, knowing what I know about the, you know, the different uh, genes available and kind of, you know, markers for strength and power and how everybody kind of works. There's just enough periodization to kind of uh, universally apply to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with, you know, obviously, uh, you know, very rep ranges. We, you know, anything from one to five is for more strength. Uh, I do more volume stuff. I push it out. I mean, there's definitely uh, a very, you know, I'm trying to write a more broad program to encompass more people. Um, the only thing that's, you know, I'm not going to really encompass in the program is if all of a sudden you're a, a super high volume guy that might need, you know, 60 sets. Right. You, you know, you just can't throw that in the program. Yeah. We can't pro it because, um, you know, what I have to do is almost right to like the low to moderate intensity guy or a uh, volume guys, which it might be, you know, something that we can realistically get done in, you know, 60, 70, 80 minutes where all of a sudden there might be some people that have to drive adaptation a little bit farther out there. 
you know, which of those guys you're going to see, they're like, man, I started working out three times a day and the results got better. You just might be that guy. So I, you know, the other thing too, and I think where people get a little confused on this is um, the genetic stuff's only going to give you about 50%. What that means is that's where you start the, the gene, uh, you know, what you get in your stuff. That's 50%. The other 50% is what you've done with it since birth. So you might have, you know, the Adelaide for, um, you know, whatever the sprinter gene is, and you might be RR, uh, which means you started with all, you know, this really dope, um, you know, you know, gene profile that, you know, should put you in the idea of being a real explosive athlete. But for the last 30 years, you've done absolutely nothing. You're an endurance runner. Nothing. You've just sat on the couch. Mm -hmm. So you've done nothing to, uh, express the gene, massage it, grow it, uh, you know, exp- you know, use it, you know, uh, and, you know, just like anything with muscles in the body, if you don't use it, they become really not available to us. So even though you have that, you know, genetic raw material or that potential, your ability to use it and express it over time is going to be the other 50%. So just because you have the Adelaide and you have this doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden you're a winner. I mean, like I remember Dan looking at my stuff and being like, oh, Based on what I see with with yours, uh, you know, I would, you know, you could say, okay, this makes a case for this guy being a professional athlete. Uh, there was also some weird stuff that he was like, wow, this is kind of odd. Like I had some weird endurance stuff that was uh, really apparent. I was like, wow. So what you're saying is, if I do some more aerobic capacity kind of low end aerobic work, I can improve on a bunch of different stuff. And he said, yes, based on you know, what we're seeing from your genes that if you all of a sudden start paying a little bit more attention to some of, you know, creating an aerobic base, that'll help you in other ways. And it has. So that was something that for years I fought and discarded. And I would literally, when I taught the seminar, anybody that came to our early stuff, I was like, they're, you know, training in um, energy systems of ATP and glycolytic uh, is all you have to do. Fuck the aerobic pathway, these, pat, you know, these uh, payback. So if you're strong on these, you can just muscle through aerobics. Fuck that shit. Uh, you know, developing aerobic pathway doesn't play forward. It doesn't do anything. And um, I learned the error of my ways. And actually, I learned through my own training that actually developing an aerobic base actually increased my strength and helped me be uh, a more efficient athlete. And I wish I'd found that early on. But not so, doing the aerobic alone. It's including yes, it. including it. Whereas the idea of like the only – my deal was uh, either I was running 100 miles as fast as I could and the only cardio that I would ever do is walking from the facility to my car. Mm-hmm. Like I did zero aerobic work and I just thought it was stupid. I thought it didn't pay any dividend and there was nothing. And I wish I could go back in time and change that. And, I, and the fitness genes was very, very good about uh, showing me that. And when I went and explored it, I was like, fuck man, that makes total sense. So it taught me something about myself that I didn't know. So I guess in to, to answer directly, cause it's kind of more my, like I, my wheelhouse, will we create a program that will pair everybody's fitness genes? No, but do all of our coaches, have we all got our fitness genes done? Do we all know how it works? Is John, has John gone like full fucking bore on learning it? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in the event that in a couple of weeks or month or a month or so, we're going to be up and running on train heroic to be able to do private coaching. Could theoretically somebody say, Hey, here's my fitness genes results. Uh, here's what my genetic propensities are. Can you create me the proverbial custom tailored type of program for me based off of this and my lifestyle. Yeah. Like that shouldn't be a problem at all. Sure. Yeah, right. That, but, but that's not going to be something we're going to offer for everyone. But you, you know, that's one-on-one that's your, like private coaching service and that, you know, cost associated, but uh, no, it's pretty, pretty jiggy stuff with the fitness genes. And uh, uh, if you haven't checked it out, give it a Google. Uh, 
it's it's really cool, really insightful on on what's going on. So, John, I'm going to jump to a two more questions because yeah. one's pretty good segue. You were talking about just like you know what you've learned in terms of okay, uh, the aerobic work can can provide um, a platform for me to improve in terms of my training. We got a question here. If you could roll back the clock, knowing what you know now, how would you change your training and lifestyle for football? Or would you have changed anything at all? Um, Hashtag pirate life. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Uh, If I could go back in time um, and go talk to the young John Walborn, I could have helped him avoid a bunch of injuries. Um, So oddly enough, uh, the first bout I ever had with any tendonitis in my knee came from this idea. Like I joined the track team because I was going to throw the shot, but I also wanted to learn to sprint. And I remember uh, we were running hurdles and I tripped on a hurdle. And as I tripped, I uh, drove my knee straight into the ground and my knee like blew up. And I like, you know, and that was my first bout of tendonitis. We left there and we went in the weight room and I had this idea that, man, I had to get my squats in or I wasn't going to be able to like progress. And that kind of like day-to-day mentality was stupid. I should have been like, no, I'm not going to fucking do anything until my knee's better. And so I went in there and squatted through the pain. And that was really how the patellar tendonitis started in my left knee. And um, the other one is uh, I was a senior in high school and my buddy, I went over to my buddy's house. We were up there. He had a tree fort. We were up in his tree house and we were throwing beer cans off of this top of his tree house. And as I came down, as I was climbing down, one of the rungs broke and it drove my right knee right in the ground. And that's how I tore my ACL. Hmm. So hindsight, I shouldn't have run hurdles and I shouldn't have gone over to my buddy's house that night. And that would have stopped me. Um, but what about training style? Like, what did you do? So I know, like, you talk about doing all the heavy singles and shit uh, yeah. in Zangus's garage. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. well, so when we did, when we were at Zangus's garage, we, we had these marathon squat workouts. And they were always like, you know, pyramid up to a heavy single. And uh, the other problem, too, is uh, the guys I was training with were all real strong. And so all of a sudden, you're like looking around and you're like, hey, what are those rap things? And so, dude, we were like, I was 14 years old. Like, I'd been squatting like four weeks and like working up to singles and all of a sudden I'm throwing fucking knee wraps on. So stupid. Like <laughs> I uh, like, and then coupling the knee wrap with like when I jam my knee up on the track and then went and squatted all of a sudden my knees all blown up and I'm fucking wrapping and basically pulling that tendon and that kneecap and driving it into the knee and fucked it up. So, I mean, this, the stu- the thing I did is I shouldn't have wrapped up as fast. I mean, I used to like to this day, like the thought of putting on knee wraps, like makes me throw up. And anytime we put them on, I'm like, such a little bitch about putting them on because I have such a, a negative feeling about them. But um, I think really doing that and also not understanding the physiology and working up to singles while I got stronger, I think if I could have done the linear progression like we had done, like we offer, uh, you know, I mean, and I was a strong dude. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I squatted 600 before I was 20 and benched 500 before I was 22. Um, so, uh, you know, those were good lifts, but I, I firmly believe that I could have, you know, gotten there. I could have squatted 600 pounds before I left high school. And I dared, I definitely could have benched, you know, in the threes, if not better coming out of high school. I think uh, I just didn't understand loading. I didn't understand progression and nobody really explained it to me. You know, we went in there and trained with George and, you know, he would give us information, but I was 14 years old, 15 years old. It means I was a fucking moron, but like, I wish Somebody had handed me and been like, here you go. Here's this amateur progression. Don't ask any fucking questions. Don't do anything extra. And we were stupid too. We used to um, um, lift weights at lunch. And then the guys I was lifting weights with were older. So they didn't have any fifth period. And then they had football at sixth period. 
So they were like, well, we lift weights at lunch and I would always have to leave and go to fifth period after lunch. And uh, they were like, well, you can't go anymore. And I was like, well, fuck, I think I have to. So I went into my counselor and was like, hey, uh, how do I not have to go to my class for fifth period? And the teacher was like, well, you could take zero period. I'm like, what's that? She's like, you start at seven. I was like, all right. So I enrolled and uh, got my class switched and had zero period. So I would go to school from seven to, you know, zero period up till fourth. And then I would lift weights at lunch and fifth period. And then we would uh, football and then we would get in the car and my training partner would drive us to 24 hour fitness where we would do another workout. So we were effectively working out for like two hours playing football and then going and working out for another two hours. And, um, it was stupid. It was too much. It was like all every kid we get, Oh, you know, I want to do seven workouts. It's just fucking too much. And I think the problem is, is when you're that age, your attention and your understanding is only day to day and you can't see the bigger picture. I mm -hmm. wish I had had a mentor or somebody and Z Zangus was great, but we were dipshit kids. I wish he had like snapped me up by the nape of my neck and been like, Hey motherfucker, you're going to train three, four days a week. This is all you're going to do. And if I find out you're doing anything extra, I'm going to beat your ass. And, uh, you know, and I think I could have progressed a lot of weight, but, um, you know, good thing I made all these mistakes so that you guys don't have to, I feel like all the mistakes and injuries and all the problems and all the bullshit that I've dealt with was just preparation for all the information we give out to you guys. And more importantly for, you know, my kids and everybody around me. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty opinionated with this stuff just because I've seen, you know, uh, you know, I've had to, to, to take my training and use it at a high level and I can see the mistakes I made in the past and I'm honest about it. And this is what I do. And this is what I wouldn't do. It's all based on your talk to me, Johnny experience. What advice do you have for aspiring writers that want to inform the web readers? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Don't, don't do this. Just keep your words um, to yourself. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think the one thing that I've, um, anybody that's come, you know, and would talk to me, Johnny, I mean, I, so I don't know if you guys know this, but I was a rhetoric major in college, which was like an English philosophy with an argumentative approach, uh, at Berkeley. And I had aspirations of going to law school and there was an old, um, old law professor, been an old attorney, a guy named Adrian Cragen. And it, I, I got to meet with him and he was kind of a, a mentor for me. And we talked about, you know, when I was a young guy, you know, my goal is to go to law school and be an attorney. And he said, you know, uh, my only advice is to learn to read and write to the best of your ability. And there just so happens to be a major here at Berkeley called rhetoric, which would be tailored for you. And that's how I got into be a rhetoric major. The one, and then I went on and did my master's work in education, but the one strong suit I always had was reading and writing. And when I crafted, talk to me, Johnny, there needed to be a voice. And that's something that, you know, and we, we have, you know, various writers and coaches and people that do stuff with power athlete. And I always get to read, their information. And the one thing that I always look for is the development of their voice. And when I say voice, like what's the angle, what's the perception. If I read five articles, do I know who wrote each one based on the ethos that they've created and kind of their, you know, vernacular and how they phrase things and what they really do. And they're literally like writing nuances. And, you know, when somebody starts, I think it's difficult, but then over time, I mean, case in point, I can think of Tex and Cali, um, you know, Cali really developed a very, funny, uh, you know, uh, you know, voice and a, and a very fun, funny, uh, sense of humor when she wrote, you know, Texas, the same thing. So, I mean, the, um, ability to create that all takes time. Like nobody comes out of the box and just instantly has that stuff. I mean, I have, you know, years of writing experience. And so when I wrote, talk to me, Johnny, I knew the voice that I wanted 
and um, had the opportunity just to be able to basically write it. And so with a lot of young writers and people that come out, it takes time to develop. And the only way you develop it is just by writing, just by doing it, writing it, coming up, or, you know, being intelligent enough to sit down and say, what do I want to project? You know, what's the idea? What's the image? You know, what's the voice that I'm trying to, to grasp? And um, with Talk To Me Johnny, uh, the voice was just one of um, just very to, you know, funny sense of humor, very, you know, trying to be very you know cutting and witty, which is, you know, pretty much what we do all the day. But I think, you know, I've met a lot of people that were real funny, very witty, but not so with their writing. Mm-hmm. And I've met people that were terribly, un, uh, you know, unexciting that were incredible writers. So I think being able to portray your personality and the other thing too, um, and I know this sounds ironic with writing, uh, honesty, you know, in a world where we're living within, you know, the confines of the world that we create, the ability to be honest, I think will always have an audience. Uh, I read so much on the internet that's just blatant hand jobs, like fucking HJs of the most magnet proportion. And I think like, when you read something that's honest and true, people gravitate towards it. And, you know, the way that I know that, that my, my, my writing is actually truthful is the amount of butthurt that it causes. If I write something and nobody's butthurt and I don't get a negative comment or that guy's a fucking asshole, then obviously I wasn't either honest enough or I wasn't picking a topic that was, that was, you know, making people think, you know, case in point, like my 43 things I learned or that other one that seriously muscle one. I had some guy in there the other day be like, this guy's a fucking asshole. Perfect. (laughs) That's exactly what people need because you know what? Like, like nobody ever got better from fucking sugarcoating. Nobody ever took free positive advice. You know, you're doing great. Keep going, kid. No, nobody fucking takes that. You never learn shit in the face of that stuff. Yeah, that conflict craft character, yeah. you know, like. But in today's world, everybody has to fucking get a pat on the back and we have to, you know, and I honestly think it's bullshit because it's this idea of like, oh, we have to help and this. And I'm like, dude, like, like that's that's non-representative of real the real world you yeah. know like you have to you know if everything is fucking handed to you on a silver platter what do you ever learn where's the struggle where's the perseverance where's the failure where's the knockdown if you never fucking have that uh-huh. like like i mean character comes from adversity and like if there's never been any adversity and i this is a, a stupid analogy but i uh back in my previous life when i played in the nfl i used to roll with some big some fucking big dogs and I used to roll with these billionaire dudes and um, their dad was a billionaire and these guys had like, you know, $150 million expense accounts to basically fuck off and do whatever they wanted, private jets, the whole deal. And I remember um, they had no perception of food. So like we would go out to dinner, we go places and it didn't matter if it was fucking pinks on Melrose or, uh, you know, Benny Hanna, or, you know, you're eating at the nicest restaurant in Vegas, which, you know, we ate at some really nice restaurants, um, because every meal was like a, you know, they had a private chef and they were growing up and this, I mean, they had no perception of what was good and bad. They had no appreciation. They had no appreciation. <laughs> so like to, to know really what a good meal is, you've had to have some shit meals. Like, I mean, we ate fucking hamburgers and rice when I was growing up for most meals. I mean, like, dude, like I get a nice steak and like, I take a second and I'm like, man, this is beautiful. Or like, a, you know, go out to dinner and have an amazing bottle of wine. Dude, I've drank some really crappy stuff, as I'm sure Luke has. I mean, we've drank Malort's. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that appreciation is something nicer. I mean, like if if, if your first car was a, was a Bentley and you've never had anything less than a Lamborghini, like do you really have an appreciation for it? Like I 
you know, drove a piece of shit car. Like, you know, I had a $300 motorcycle, like, you know, all these things like add appreciation. I mean, you know, my first fucking house was, you know, uh, you know, so it's like, I always think that like, you have to have some frame of reference. And the thing that ended up kind of smoking me on these dudes and why I just never kicked it with them anymore was uh, they had no perception of reality. Like they, uh, they had no, there, there was never any struggle there. Everything was given to them. They had uh, no perception of reality. And because that they valued nothing, they appreciated nothing and nothing was of interest. And it was extremely just weirdly superficial. And um, I never wanted to be around that. And, um, you know, I, I always had friends that be like, oh, I want to make a billion dollars. I'm like, not me. Because when you make a billion dollars, you have to hang out with fucking rich people. And um, it's fucking difficult. But you know, I mean, you, you meet some really, really rich people like, I mean, or some very, very successful people like, you know, Bill Bradley, for example, or different people that are fucking salt of the earth that are as real as they get because, you know what, they started somewhere and they struggled, they fought, and they value everything they have and they, they earn it every day. And it's it's not necessarily the money. It's actually the, uh, um, you know, just a way of keeping score and showing about how much they grind. And to me, like, those are the people I want to be around. I don't want to be around some fucking silver spoon rich fucking billionaires kids who are just you know fucking subhuman in terms of uh you know their appreciation for the fun for for things in life yeah who can't acknowledge or realize or overcome conflict you know like when conflict people either shut down or run from it or ignore it like tackle it let's let's face it head on let's see what's up you know uh and then i'm gonna jump to the final question this is like a little two-hour gig so this dude kevin is a boxer all right um recently his sparring partner best friend died in the ring during a match against uh, this champion boxer from Russia. So he challenged the Russian to a boxing match and intends to win. Should he go to Russia, then do endless calisthenics, snow running, log chopping, and dragon flags to a montage of training songs? Yes. Okay. What What you got to do is you got to find a barn in Siberia, (laughs) right? And And actually have the jacket that you need. It's a bomber jacket with leather, and it's got fur on the inside, and I actually bought it for that specific purpose. What about any sort of hat? Uh, you do, yeah. You need like a, like a, a knit cap, okay. and uh, you have to run in the snow. You have to lift a, a sled, and you, and you have to find a big sack full of rocks. Okay. Um, and um, you usually need like a really old boxing trainer, preferably a, like an old black dude from mm-hmm. Venice, California, and you got to find him, and you got to bring him with you. And he's, he's got to be your hype man. You got to be ready. And uh, you grow a beard and then you shave it when you're ready. Beautiful. That's it. Denny, any advice? That's just a beautiful image right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, you run, do you run to the top of the mountain? Oh, yeah. And then you're like, oh, and you have to scream whoever this, you know, the boxer that killed your buddy, you have to scream his name from the top of that Siberian. I know? think that kind of is like the pinnacle. You, you, once you get that, you, you're complete. I feel like we have to go watch that, that training montage. As soon as we hang up, we're putting on that training montage during lunch because I'm fucking jonesing for my crockpot meal. Awesome, dude. Well, we we tackled basically a bunch of questions. Uh, there's one or two that just didn't have enough info. But um, no, solid show. Cool. All right. Thank you. All right, All right guys. See you, Later. Later. Drop on, drop now it's time for you to empower your performance. That just about does it for this week's episode of Power Athlete Radio. If you'd like to take a gander at the original questions asked by our live audience, check us out on Instagram at Power Athlete HQ. Until next time, 